Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Literacy Advocate. I'm your host, Timmy Bauer, and my guest today is Carl Rosen. He's an English teacher at Radnor High School in Radnor, Pennsylvania. He's been in education for 24 years. You said 22 in your current school? Yep. Awesome. Uh, you've been an English high school teacher uh, for the entire time that you've been in education. You have a master's in education from Harvard. And a bit of fun here, you are the winner of a few prestigious awards, including 2014's National High School Philosophy Teacher of the Year. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's actually, it's from an organization with a great name. It's the Philosophy Learning and Teaching Organization, PLATO. You know, they like making their, oh, that's cool. their uh, acronyms there. Um, based out of the University of Washington, I believe, but uh, it was great. And, and you'll appreciate this when uh, they had the conference um, the next year, I went to, you know, go accept the award and, and present at the conference. I got to meet Jonathan Kozel, which was wonderful. He's uh, one That's of my awesome. education heroes. That's so cool. Um, so we're going to talk today about, uh, in our last conversation, we talked about teaching emotionally difficult things um, and teaching challenging things. And you're, you said you can approach um, things that are very challenging. Uh, it is possible for a teacher to approach things that are very challenging. You have to do it in ways that are especially engaging and that that is possible. Um, so first of all, what do you mean by that? I feel like I stumbled all over that statement, but you go ahead and unpack it. <laughs> well, um, I, I think there's, it, it takes a tremendous amount of awareness of where the, the risks might be. Um, you, you can't go in blind just, you know, because something is a famous work or because something is in the curriculum, you can't go in thinking, oh, the kids are going to like this just because that's what we are told telling no, they're them not. to do. I think they're biased to not like it because it's in the curriculum. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways that I like to go around trying to get them to think about how this might be a little bit uh, dangerous for them, like they're breaking some yeah. kind of rules. I mean, we understand the the psychology of, of teenagers, and yes. they understand the psychology of us certainly. Um, yeah. So when you know when I approach a you know a challenging work like that, I I do like the idea of trying to anticipate. Okay, where are the where are the challenges here? And that's actually over the whole course, not just over a single yeah. book. Um, you know, if I, I am a a white male teacher, I want to make sure that my course is is going to address all of the students in my classroom and all of their various um, you know, interests and, and things. And, and I am trying to make sure that the course uh, addresses gender and sexuality and race and all those things that make life what it is. And yeah. so one of the things that, that um, maybe is more important than anything else is just not assuming that everybody wants to read what I you know, wanted to read, uh, because someone said so. So I, I'm very interested in trying to anticipate the, uh, the sort of things that will, that will allow a kid to, um, to want to buy in. And yeah. uh, some of that is, as, as you and I were talking about a little earlier, I want to come up with things that reduce their resistance to the work. Um, yeah. And, and let me have you do that... this, Carl, before you go sure. too much further, I want to, I want to use a concrete example. Sure. So what, yeah. So what's an example of a, of a book that is both emotionally challenging and also challenging for you to get buy-in? Well, the, the ideal example is really the adventures of Huckleberry Finn for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, it is a book that has been challenged and challenged I've never read and it. challenged and challenged. You haven't. I've never read it. <laughs> no. well, I hope when you do read it, you'll have a good teacher. Um, it's a, it, it's a, it's a very, it's a challenging book in a lot of different ways. Um, 
not least, I, I would say for, foremost among those ways is that it is challenging from a racial standpoint. Um, the language is very, um, it can be uncomfortable. There's there's over 200 uses of the, the racial slur the, that we commonly call the N-word, um, yeah. which by the way, I do not use in class. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's an essential part of the book. And I we all know that people in the United States still tragically use that word. Um, that doesn't mean I have to use it. And that doesn't mean anybody in my classroom is allowed to use it. But that has led to very reasonable concerns about whether this book is appropriate. So do you think it ought to be canceled personally? I, I don't think it ought to be canceled because I think that it is in fact an a, a book against racism. And there are a couple of ways that it is, it is set up that way, um, but kids know they've heard about it. And so they know that it's somewhat, you know, dangerous. They've probably heard people saying that they hated it. Um, you know, maybe a parent hated it or, or another teacher, um, another teacher's students complained about it. I, I certainly think that the people in my school do a, do a good job, but who knows who, who they've heard. And online, I've seen a lot of criticism of it from, from excellent teachers, people I follow on Twitter who are really, I've very impressed with the things that they say and they've told me that they hate it or you know as as you said you're a very well-read man you never read it never read um, it so the there are a couple of things there in addition to that in addition to the risk that goes with it from the from that racial standpoint uh, here is a book that is 170 years old so it is might they might think uh, i can't enjoy something that old and that that is another risk. And so you have to. Yeah, figure I want to pause right, well, right there for a second. I don't want you to blow past this. Um, you, you said it really succinctly uh, when we talked last. That there are two ways. There are two primary things that you do to drive engagement on a difficult text. Um, you said one of them is you reduce resistance. And then the other is uh, in you sort of engage their teenage desire to do something risky. So, yeah, I, I think what you're talking about right now is probably reducing re, uh, resistance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, and, and there's there are a couple of things that I do with Huckleberry Finn in particular. Um, this I'm actually trying something a little bit different this year. One of the challenges that I've heard to Huckleberry Finn, which I think is very reasonable as a challenge, is that if you're talking about the problem of uh, racism and slavery, why are you using a white voice to do it? Um, which I think is an excellent question. And that's one of the questions that I have the class consider. Um, mm. The way that I'm entering this unit, in fact, is through uh, Frederick Douglass's speech, The Meaning of July 4th to the Negro. And um, that speech, which is a great speech, it's actually an AP Lang course. So talking about speeches and rhetorical analysis is essential there anyway. But the, the presentation of racism and slavery as problems that persist in the lives of people of color um, now, but uh, the certainly then the, uh, the book was published in the 1880s. It was set in the 1840s. I should have actually said it was 100 and, I don't know, 140 years old, not 170, but the setting is older. Um, huh. But like, um, you know, here we got, we've got um, Douglas talking about it while slavery is still, still you know, legal in that say, not only is it legal, but do you get the Fugitive Slave Act? If someone had captured Frederick Douglass, he might have been sold back into slavery, um, which is you know, horrifying to think about given his his prominence in, in, in America. So um, I want to make sure that, that the students are aware that I am approaching this as a book that is 
um, that is not the only word on African-Americans, on slavery, on the 1840s or the 1880s for that matter. Um, and, and I do think that I've spent a tremendous amount of time throughout the year and I always do presenting African-American voices. So I don't, I, I don't want anybody to misperceive this as, you know, here is a, here's a course that is just about dead white men. Um, and, and I think that canonical works are much broader than that, but people do perceive them as a dead white men thing. And, and so I want to make sure that they understand it's like, Hey, you know, I'm also doing Rita Dove and I'm also doing uh, Langston Hughes and I'm also doing Zora Neale Hurston. And, and these are all crucial in American literature and the arc through the, through the literature. Yeah. So, so the, those are all parts of reducing resistance. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as we think of in the world of AP Lang, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's an appeal to ethos. I am building my credibility with my students that I am uh, approaching this in a way that is, that is ethical, that is, that is reasonable. When I actually get to the book itself, and this is something well, I, I don't do. I, I, I want to ask you this, what kind of sure. resistance do you get from the students themselves? Okay, so I have to admit that if I'm doing it right, I probably shouldn't get a lot of resistance. Um, I have had, I have had resistance to books, but not to the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now I know people who have, um, but uh, I would like to think that um, when I approach it in this way, that students feel like I am going to address their concerns, and so they are not going to resist in the way that they might. Um, in in other things, uh, and uh -huh. I think that's just Got part it. of the Got part it. of the psychology. Um, yeah. The books that I haven't, no, like, I received a challenge once to um, the novel, one of my favorite novels, which is a summer read for us, and it is the novel "The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay" by Michael Shaben. A wonderful book, but it has a couple of. It, there really are just blips, just a couple of elements in there that are um, sexually explicit. And now these are high school juniors, but because it's summer read, I haven't had the opportunity to sort of prepare them for it. And um, I had to parent, get really upset about it. Um, and, you know, we talked, we talked about it and, uh, and she, she was fine, but that's one of those things where, you know, you have to be especially careful with summer reading. And yeah. I've been a little hesitant to pull the trigger on some books that I would love to use because if I use them for summer reading, I can't prepare the, the kids for them. I do think the kids can handle them. But if I, if I don't have the opportunity to really present the book to the kids, I can't guide them into it through the entryway that I want them to use. And that's yeah. really what I'm talking yeah. about with the reducing resistance. Because can, can handle is a completely different thing than whether or not somebody feels thrown off or that mm -hmm. they weren't ready for something or yep. in the, in this case, a parent feels like, whoa, 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 what are you trying to do? Um, yeah. Whereas if you, if you prep them, you, you might not get that kind of reaction. Absolutely. It, it's, it's the whole idea of, of framing a question um, that yeah. we all know from yeah. just general oratory, having conversations, you know, you're involved, involved in a lot of those things. You know, that if you frame a question a certain way, you just, you're going to get the, the yes. response that you want. But I'm shocked how many people don't understand this. But yeah, like if I say to you, Car hey, Carl, I have a question I'm afraid to ask you. You're mm -hmm. in a completely different frame than if I just hit you with like a divisive question. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, one of the other examples that I, um, I've often used this example to describe it to colleagues is um, with the novel, The Kite Runner, which is on a lot of school curricula. Uh, we've actually, you know, looked around, what do we do with, when we're studying the Middle East for our sophomores? Um, you know, what are some things, of course, this is a, uh, 
it's, it's a challenge. We want to make sure that the kids are reading um, works from around the world from different viewpoints. And certainly when it was put on our curriculum, um, the, the war in Afghanistan was raging at the time. It was a fairly new book and very highly regarded. I, I really quite like it. But there is if you uh, are you familiar with that with that mm -hmm. one yet? No. The, I'll um, tell you, yeah. Just to prep you, I read a lot of um, middle grade. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I'm a kid's book author. So almost yeah. all of my reading of fiction is middle grade. <laughs> I, I totally understand. And actually a lot of great stuff in middle grade. I love it. Yeah. Um, and there's some, there's some dicey stuff in middle grade fiction too nowadays, not when I was a kid, but um, certainly nowadays. So I had a mom call me when I was a department chair and it was on a kite runner was our summer reading list. And she had heard accurately. She had an older child who had gone through and read this book and her second child was coming through. And it was a girl who she described as being somewhat sensitive. And she had heard that there was a, a particularly brutal scene that happens fairly early. One character is brutalized by another character. And it's a, it's a harsh scene. Um, and uh, she said, I don't think my daughter is ready for that. And so in that situation, because it was summer reading, what I actually did is here, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna write her a reading guide. And so I said, you're gonna read up to page 23 and then you're gonna skip over the next four pages to this part. And what happens in there is, and I described it to her in somewhat you know, softened terms. Um, I wanted her to understand what happened because it's very important to the plot. It's, it's essential to the plot. It's certainly not prurient. Um, but it turned out that, you know, first of all, she was thrilled to get this and she passed along to her daughter. And it turned out the kid ended up reading the whole thing anyway. But I think that, you know, your, your example of, you know, I'm a little worried to, to about asking you this question, that, that sets up by, by addressing the question and being concerned about the readers, you are able to get their guard down and, and get them to be open to what we want literature to do, which is, you know, open people up to things that maybe they hadn't considered before. Yeah. There's a topic that we didn't get to in this conversation. And I was curious if it would come up naturally. And it's something that you said the last time that we talked uh, that we don't want students to feel like their curriculum is just a bunch of hoops that they have to jump through. And I'll tell you that when I was in high school and in college, that is exactly how I felt with everything that I was being told to read. I think that I probably read two of the books that I was told to read in my entire high school and college time in high school and college. Um, <laughs> uh, how, how does that happen? Because I don't think that my experience was atypical. <laughs> How does, how does not reading those books happen? <laughs> how does me feeling like they're just a bunch of hoops for me to jump through? Well, I mean, you're kind of right. They are things that you have to, you have to jump through. And I think this is why one of the reasons we see in the education world now, there's more and more people who are believing it appropriate to organize their whole course around reader choice. Um, that idea of autonomy and agency being a, yeah. A huge How do you feel about that reality? I, I mean, I love the idea of, and I have over my career added more. When I first came out of grad school, I was not thinking uh, really about literacy at all. Back in the nineties, that was not a big part of secondary education training. Um, but what, what I would, what I think about is now I do expect outside reading and I try to come up with ways to um, to engage kids on what they want. And for many of those kids, for many of my high school kids, many of them very high performing high school kids, they love YA fiction and that's what they do. And uh, and I come up with ways to engage them on it. Now, I do try to guide them 
in certain towards certain areas. Um, one of the things that I do with my my um, AP Lang students, especially this year, because I, you know with the pandemic and so many of them on Zoom, we're hybrid, so I, I do get to see some of them in person. But um, there are a lot who I just don't get to know as well as I would in a normal year. So. I encourage them to do this. There's this shared journaling thing that I call the contribution log. Some kids are speakers and some kids are writers and some kids would rather be quiet. And so I've tried to get students to, um, to weigh in. Tell me what you're reading. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're listening to. And I have individual conversations with every one of those kids. And there's, there's a couple of them who, what they're reading is, it's young adult. And I get conversations. Uh, you know, uh, which Harry Potter house would you be in, Mr. Rosen? And, and uh, hey, you know, I read um, Divergent and Hunger Games and Harry Potter. Um, and I think this one's better than the others. Do you agree? Right. So we, we can have literary conversations about those things, too. I would say I, I do believe pretty strongly, well, more than pretty strongly, I believe very strongly that it is important to give kids space to read and value what they're reading. But we as teachers of English can do a lot of good if we kind of push them gently and with the proper motivation and the proper approach, push them to, to try to expand their horizons a little bit and feel like they are, they are being valued for doing so and, and give them the support that they need. Because, you know, a kid is not, some kids will pick up Jane Eyre on their own and some kids will pick up, um, you know, uh, what did I just read um, with, there's a, like uh, I was just talking actually with um, Rod, who I know you interviewed Rod Nackwood. Yeah. Um, the uh, about uh, the warmth of other suns, which is a brilliant book, um, wonderful nonfiction by Isabel Wilkerson. And um, if we assign something like that, there are going to be kids like, oh, why do I have to read this? And if they yes, read it, they're I'd be one like of those it. kids. Yeah. <laughs> if they read it, they're going to like it. Um, but you have to figure out, okay, well, how do I? get them to read it because I want them to expand their horizons. School is not just about in, you know, endorsing what they already like. I think that we can, I think there's a, there's a, a ground in there that we can, we can honor what they do appreciate without telling them you shouldn't be reading that stuff, which is kind of the way I approached at the beginning of my career to my shame. Um, and uh, so I, I do think that we can expand them. Like if they're reading, if they're reading, their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite novels. That is not an easy book. Um, it has got a dialect that's clearly intentionally designed by Hurston, who has, has a background in anthropology. Um, you know, she she created this this whole language in it. There's a it's a pretty structured. It's a very structured book, in fact. But yeah. it's not the kind of thing that a high school kid would necessarily pick up. And yet, I hear a lot of kids say, "I really liked it." And so we're you know we try to figure out ways. Um, I, I've I've learned a lot from the uh, the teach living poets people um, uh, Mel Smith and and the teach living poets people I saw them yeah. at uh, uh, present at um, when I was at um, NCTE a couple of years ago and you know when we did their eyes are watching God I paired it with a whole bunch of different poems um, seven of the poems were by living poets poets that these people that my students had never heard of and I said okay well um, these are a bunch of different kind of voices. Where do you see Janie's voice in this? So we're trying to do things that are that are dynamic and and um, and that there is no set answer. You know that mm -hmm. there are kids who picked out um, Sarah Frelig's poem uh, "Wondrous," and uh, 
and they were talking about the way that connects. And I mean, a lot of them picked Still I Rise by Maya Angelou, which is, you know, that's kind of what I expected. But I got some really some other really good ones. Um, Jericho Brown's Dear Dr. Frankenstein. You know, I got to use some of these things and and let the kids be dynamic with it. And they they recognize that they're going outside something that's that is that that seems like the hoops that they're that they might have thought that they were going through. I, I think you're absolutely right about the the danger of the hoops. Um, yeah. But I also think there's value in in having required reading. That's a whole class reading. I think this is this is an ongoing topic for me uh, because I'm so heavily biased towards um, wanting to what like what you said endorse what they already love um but i think that there's inherent value so it's it's pretty easy for me to look at a, a book um that's you know venerated by academia and go there's no reason to read that <laughs> like that's easy for me to for me to say um because i just well, let me just jump in for a second i don't think there's any one book that's essential uh-huh i i, I think that so I, I kind of agree with what you just said. Yeah, but I do think there are things that are that are very valuable to read, and I would like to get as many of them where, as possible. Where it's easy for me to agree with what you're saying is that I know what I know to be true is that there's inherent value in pushing people to do hard things and to expand their their ability. Uh, that that is inherently valuable. Expanding your ability, expanding your understanding of the world, uh, doing something that's hard. Those things are inherently valuable, but I don't know how you do that where you also don't make the kid feel like they're jumping through a hoop because that's kind of what you're doing when you are pushing them to do something hard. You, you are completely right. And that is the, that's the dance that we're trying to do all the time. And it's, you know, people kind of, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, is teaching a craft is teaching, you know, what, what's the word to use for teaching? There is a tremendous amount of sort of, um, that, that little nuanced push and pull right over that struggle. You know, if you feel like you're not getting it, you have to pull back, right? You, you have to back up. And um, I'm reading actually right now, uh, Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And, and she has a term that it just seems obvious. I should have heard this term before, but um, the term that she uses is productive struggle for what yeah, you and I are talking struggle. about. Yep. And, and I, it's a great term. And I, 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 I'm, I like the book, you know, it did introduce me to something that I hadn't thought of, but I, you know, I, I know it's true. And um, that, that idea, how do you get kids to appreciate that struggle is productive? Because uh, I mean, I, my school is a, it's a, it's a, a pretty competitive school. A lot of kids, the overwhelming majority go to college, 90 some percent go to four-year colleges. Um, it is, it's a very good school, but there's also a lot of competition. And one of the things that they learn that, that schooling teaches them is that uh, you, you got to play the game. And if you play the game, you're, you're just right there in the hoop jumping. They're like, nope, nope, this is the, this is, this is the hoop I need to jump through. But they, they do feel that resentment, even if they're on board, even if they do their reading, even if they, you know, write their essays. They, they feel it. And so I, I want to come up with ways is to go back to my little my two points from earlier. I want to figure out ways to make them actually engage because, boy, this is really I just read something else about this. Um, there was a study apparently that that reinforced what I think we all know is true, which is that when you base a system on extrinsic motivation, either either, you know, pushes or you know punishments, 
rewards or punishments, you sort of damage the idea of intrinsic motivation. Kids don't even know what intrinsic motivation is. And, and I think that's at the, that lies at the crux of what you and I are talking about. Um, yeah. On the one hand, I want the kids to be intrinsically motivated, but I also want to help their intrinsic motivation be more ecumenical than perhaps it was when they were, uh, you know, before I got to them. So, so how do I expand the number of things that interest you? And I think, you know, one of the ways to do that is to engage interdisciplinariness because you have a better chance of sort of touching on, um, you know, maybe it's music that gets them. Like I, today I was talking about, um, we, we kind of went from Walt Whitman to Allen Ginsberg. We did some beat generation poetry today, but I started the class with listening to some jazz. And, um, you know, the, the, the kids who are music kids don't always get that in their, in their English class. It's like, jazz is not incidental. It's not, I'm not throwing away class time. I'm getting, I can say, hey, jazz actually kind of makes sense when you think about these things. There's spontaneity, which the romantics were really engaged in. And of course, transcendentalism comes out of romantic, English romanticism. You've got the, the beat generation in the 1950s. They're all in jazz clubs and they got the bongos going on in the background. You know, there's, there's a feel and a flow that they can, you, you can try, you got to try a lot of different things. And I think they do appreciate us trying the go, the paint by numbers sort of kind of, if they see the teacher going through the hoops, that's the worst possible thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed completely. Carl, I could continue this conversation, but I'm out of time. How can okay. listeners connect with you? Um, I probably best through Twitter. Um, uh, I'm Carl Rosen, C-A-R-L-R-O-S-I-N uh, at, uh, at Twitter. And um, I, I do get on there and I talk a lot about education. I follow a lot of terrific educators and, um, and I'm always looking for, always looking for new connections. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Timmy.